God, thank you for today and thank you for um, this place, how you have blessed us and how you take care of us. And now, God, as we think about your generosity together, I pray that you would um, come and move our hearts and minds to understand that generosity as you see it is actually a gift you give us. We ask it in your good name. Amen. And so, yes, I'm going to talk about generosity. You are probably not surprised if you looked in your bulletins because there are pledge cards in there. This is my fourth November as your rector and my fourth sermon on generosity. And one thing that I get asked often after these sermons is why I don't do a biblical exegesis on the concept of a tithe. I get, off, I get asked that a lot. And the reason that I don't do that is because I think that what happens when we start to talk about tithe is that our mind goes to the bare minimum. What is the least that I have to do to be right before God on this issue? Plus, frankly, the idea of biblical tithing has been poorly taught and misunderstood over the years. And to, to, do, to, to unwind all that is just not in our best interest. And lastly, when we start to talk about tithe and 10%, that's all tithe means, by the way. It just means a tenth, right? So there's no such thing as half a tithe. It just, it just, that would be 5%, right? It's just 10 and tenth. Um, if we do that, a lot of times that has been used kind of as a, as a weapon, right, to make us feel bad that we're not doing enough. None of that. Is going to happen today, okay? None of that has happened today. But I have entitled today's sermon, Sacrificial Generosity, and this is a biblical redundancy. It's like saying warm heat. Because in the Jesus way of thinking about giving, the only generosity there is, is sacrificial in his mind. That's it. The very simple reading that Jan read here, is about sacrificial generosity. It's a four-verse observation by Jesus. And by the way, in Luke, it is in the middle of the crucifixion narrative. We, we, it's, sometimes this is called the widow's might. Have you heard it called that? It, it, it's, it, I'll talk about why it's called that in just a minute. But, but, but we, we miss that it's in chapter 21 of Luke. And the reason that Jesus is making the observation is all is because he's in Jerusalem to die. The triumphal entry has happened. All of the Holy Week things are on the way. And Jesus is standing in the temple courtyard as people are coming to put their offerings in one of nine trumpet-shaped collection boxes. And he's standing there and he's observing that. And he makes an observation. He notices a widow in the midst of all this. This would have been very active. Jerusalem's a big city. There's a lot of things happening. There's a lot of people going to give their tithes and offerings. And he's, he's standing there watching this all happen. And he takes notice of a widow who goes and puts two coins, the text tells us, in the basket. The widow's mite. It's not a lot of money. In fact, it doesn't represent a lot of money at all. From a just strictly monetary value, it's really not going to do much for the kingdom. You have to understand this. It is a mite. It's minuscule. Yet, Jesus makes a pronouncement 
He says to those who are with him, probably his 12 apostles, one who is about to betray him because he's greedy, by the way. Just sidelight, we don't know a lot about Judas Iscariot. The one thing we know about his character is that he's greedy. He's not generous. Just FYI. He's the one always telling Jesus, hey, you shouldn't spend money on the poor. Hey, why'd she pour that out? That's not right. right. He's always worried about money. And there's a reason that he betrays Jesus for silver. It's greedy. All right, I'm back behind the podium. So Judas and the other 11 disciples are there, and Jesus makes this proclamation. She's given more than everybody else put together who's come here so far. That's, that's actually what it says. Sometimes you read it and think, she's given more than the guy who went in front of her and the woman who's coming behind her. That's not what Jesus says. The language is very clear. She's given more combined than everybody who's come to the trumpet-shaped boxes because she gave everything she had. By noticing and commending the widow and her gift, Jesus frees us from the tyranny of the bare minimum. Can you hear me say that? Please hear me say this above everything else today. Generosity isn't a gift we do. It's a gift that we are given. Jesus is saying, look at the gift. She's free from the tyranny of the bare minimum. She puts it in. And as far as we can tell, she puts it in quietly and joyfully. He doesn't stop her. We have no record of an interaction between Jesus and this widow whatsoever. But we know that he notices her. It's a gift. Generosity is a gift. And it's a gift to us that comes in three ways. Jesus recognizes sacrificial generosity as a way to create margin in our lives to bless others and make God's people a transformative presence in their neighborhoods. Okay, I want to talk about these three things. It creates margin in our lives, it blesses others, and it makes the people of God a transformative presence in our neighborhoods. So, sacrificial generosity creates margin in our lives. Here's a word, a very specific word I'm using called margin. Margin is a way of simply saying that we have reserves in our lives, right, to live as God intends. We've got space is another way to say it in our lives. So let me just give you an example about this. Following God's rhythm of rest and work creates a margin of time in our lives, Every minute isn't spent working or entertaining ourselves. There is margin in our day and in our week and in each season to be present with God and present with others, right? When we don't schedule everything, when we say no to even really good things, we now have space to live like God wants us to live. This is why we're big fans here at Church of the Apostles of rest and rhythm, of following the church calendar. You hear me talk a lot about that. And we're big fans, although it's hard, to say no to some good things. You have to say no to create margin. You have to. Even the good things. Sometimes you have to say no. So you can just be present to God and to others. Well, that's how it works in time. But there is margin in our finances. It simply means that we spend way less than we make. That's all it means. It means that we don't spend every penny that we make, that we have margin in our lives. Dallas Willard says this, 
Practicing frugality means we stay within the bounds of what general good judgment would designate as necessary for the kind of life which God has led us. That's a great definition of margin. He uses the word frugality. We all cringe. Frugal means cheap. It doesn't. It means margin. It means staying within the bounds of general good judgment that would designate the kind of life which God has led us to live. Beautiful. Creating margin simply means that we're honest before God about what we need and confessing sin where we have gone too far for ourselves, right? That's all it means. We're just, we're just going to stand before God and say, God, what do we need and where have we gone off the rails? Do we need it and do we need it now? Is a question that we frequently ask on staff. Some will say, hey, should we buy this? And my first, right? Do we need it? Do we need it now? If both are yes, let's do it. If either is no, hold on. Let's just wait a minute. Do we need it? Do we need it now? It's a great way to live our lives. It creates margin. So why is margin even important? Why am I talking about this? It sounds like, a, sounds like you're at a, 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 like a, what am I trying to say? A, a life coaching lesson, right? But what makes it gospel? Why is it important? Because margin allows us to answer the call to bless others. That's, what, that's how it becomes gospel. It allows us to answer God's call to bless others. And that brings us to number two. Sacrificial generosity blesses others. We've been talking about vocation and calling for the past six weeks, and we began that series talking about Abraham, that he was called from his people and from his place and from his situation for the sake of others. He was called, he was blessed to be a blessing. In fact, he was blessed financially with land and people and power and influence to give all of those things away and to bless others. Part of our common vocation as disciples of Christ is to be a blessing to others by practicing sacrificial generosity, by meeting specific needs. We see this in Acts 2, don't we? This little phrase, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. An off-misunderstood I mean, people go off the rails on this passage of Scripture all the time. I almost didn't have George read it today because it's just been so mis-kind of thought through. Here's all that it meant. People looked around at what they had and realized that they didn't need it all. Right? They looked around at what they had. They realized they didn't need it all. So they liquidated what they didn't need, creating margin in their lives, by the way, so that they could meet the need of other people. That's what it means. It's not some diatribe on social systems and economic policies and plans. By the way, try to do that out of Scripture for any of your favorite economic policy. You're going to come up short because this is a kingdom directive. The kingdom directive is look around, live within your margin so that you can give what others need. And that's what they did. They actually looked around and probably were convicted that they had too much, some, and convicted that others had too little. There were needs, they met them. But can I say one other thing about it? 
A lot of times we're like, yeah, but then they were in need, the people who gave. No, 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 there's a little thing. There's a thing. There's a thing. Don't miss it. Everybody, a thing. Nobody was in need, it says. Nobody was in need. Everybody had what and maybe more than they needed. This wasn't working ourselves up into a frenzy and faking poverty so we could. It just created margin. Everybody had what they needed. Everybody was taken care of. Everybody ate. Everybody had clothing. Everybody had these things that we need. Nobody was without. Nobody. People looked around. They saw what people needed. They took care of the problem out of their margin. It's sacrificial, isn't it? Now, this passage in Acts 2, 42 through 47, is often uh, preached as a strategy for outreach and church building. I've heard sermons that it's the only way, like this is a small group passage. Weird, but okay. Um, I've heard that sermon. It wasn't great. Um, And, you know, other things, like it's just all these, like, just like books have been written about this. And that's fine. But I would like to say this. I don't think that the purpose of Acts 2, these last verses, actually is a set of, um, is not a strategy for church growth. I don't see it that way. And I don't think it should be for us. It's very early in the process. There are strategies in it. Rather, I think it's a set of six spiritual disciplines that the church is expected to practice starting at that moment. I think there's six disciplines here. Not a church strategy. Disciplines. So let's just look at them. The apostles' teaching. We're devoted to the word. That's a spiritual discipline. The fellowship, the fellowship, by the way, is not devoted to fellowship. It's, it, there's some of that in here, but it, this is important. It's the, I don't use much Greek here, but this one you probably have heard of, koinonia. This is a very specific Greek word, one you should know, koinonia. It means the home of the church. They were, they were committed to the local church is what it means. That's what it means. That's, that's the second one. The word, the local church. The breaking of bread early in the passage means the sacraments. The sacraments of Eucharist specifically in that case. But remember, as George told us, 3,000 were baptized right before this happened. So we've got both the sacraments represented. Spiritual gifts. God's kingdom breaking in on earth as it is in heaven. This is a spiritual discipline. Using your gifts to edify the body. And then sacrificial generosity as a spiritual discipline. They sold what they had and gave to others. And last but not least, the sixth is radical hospitality. They opened up their homes to all people, neighbors and friends and brothers, sisters in Christ and strangers and foreigners and even enemies. They did the Jesus thing and they became radically hospitable. There they are. They're in there. Now, why am, I, why, am I, why am I taking the time in a sermon about generosity to talk about these six disciplines? Well, first of all, we could do a lot worse than practicing those six disciplines together. Amen? Amen. But as a set, when we read these, we kind of pick and choose. Like, can we just, can we talk for a minute? Can we be honest for a second? I'm with you. I read a list like this and I'm like, You know, I dig the word. I get that. What up with the sacraments? 
I mean, I can hear the word on the internet. But if I skip church, who gives me the sacraments? Right? I did, you know, I like that. I'm all about, you know, I'm all about spiritual gifts. I love to see those at work. I wish I could get them outside of the church cell because that drives me crazy. I mean, people are weird. Right? Amen? That's not where I thought I'd get an amen. But, okay, amen. Amen. Everyone's in agreement. Yeah. Me too. I'm weird. And it's funny when we talk about this passage how often sacrificial generosity and radical hospitality are just left out. I want to submit to you right now that they are the two of these six that were practiced intentionally and outwardly by the first church. Now, we're not going to die on a hill about spiritual gifts, but in this passage, they come later, by the way, for mission. There's no question. But in this passage, it seems to be that they're kind of of within the body. They kind of come later, so we're not going to die on the hill. But there is something going on here that it's happening internally, it seems like. People are, people are in awe, it says together. Like, they're, it's part of worship. They're like, ah. But it's generosity and hospitality that are practiced outward. You with me? And they're the only two on this list. They're the outward spiritual disciplines that we practice for the sake of others to be a blessing. That's my point. They're all of these six disciplines don't hear my little joking as being flippant. They work together. One without the other is, it doesn't work. Including, is my point, generosity and hospitality. And here's what it leads to. These outward spiritual practices leads to this, a transformative presence in their neighbor. This is a very regional moment. It's going, to get, it's going to get global. I'm looking at Frank. Frank, it gets global, right? We've talked about this. It gets global. Amen. amen. There it is. Thank you. We're all weird, Frank. Don't amen that. It gets global very quickly. We're not going to talk about that yet. It does get global. Very, it changes the world, in fact. Because of outward generosity. Yeah, I'm talking about it. Because of outward generosity, the greatest missionary endeavor in the history of humanity begins moments after the church is founded. I mean, minutes. I mean, like it's the next thing they do. Oh, Jesus meant Judea, Samaria, all the earth. Okay, well, let's do that. Let's pass the basket. Everybody pony up. We got to send people to do that. I mean, it happens like that. It's coming. Just keep reading Acts. It's amazing. As long as I'm preaching on it, one more thing. They didn't call a missions conference. They didn't write a book about the 10 best ways to reach the world. Everybody sold what they didn't need, put the money in the basket, and sent people to go tell people about Jesus. Because we believe Jesus. We do what he says. Okay, the world's going to change, but not yet. What changes in Acts 2 first is their neighborhood. This is a regional thing, what's going on. They transform where they're living. Because all six of those disciplines are active 
including generosity and hospitality. Here's what happens to the people. It says it right here in the passage. They have glad and generous hearts, so they praise God, and they find favor with all people. Uh, can I just say something? You think Christians are hated now. You, Christians were being hung upside down on crosses at this stage of the game. Okay? To say that this group of people found favor with all people means all people. It means their friends and the strangers and their enemies. They found favor. It is an amazing quote. It should just make a stop. The rest of this book is full of Christians being scattered and persecuted. But it starts with this little merry band finding favor with all people. It's amazing. And because they found favor with all people, because they practiced those disciplines outwardly and they were glad of heart, something happens. And the Lord added to their numbers, day by day, those who were being saved. It's just great, by the way. The Lord added to their numbers day by day. I want to be really clear about something. The reason I don't preach generosity like, a, like I don't hit you over the head with it is we practice spiritual disciplines, but the Lord gives the increase. I'm emotional about it because it takes, us, it takes me off the hook, doesn't it, this morning? And in reality, we have the easy part. Being, being generous, being sacrificially generous actually isn't, it's really the easy part of the equation. It's easier than trying to find favor. Right? It's easier than assessing every need around us. It's easier. It's actually the easy, I, I, this was said once at a church I was at, and I just, it blew my mind. It's just this simple. Guy said, you're not good at spiritual discipline. Start with the easiest one to master. Put some money in the plate every week. That's what he said. It was a church that I was a pastor at. I'm glad he said it, not me. <laughs> and I want to say that the practice of sacrificial generosity gets special attention throughout the scriptures. It does. We should not miss the absolute amazement that Jesus noticed this widow. It's the character of God. He notices sacrificial generosity. And can I tell you something? I'm not going to preach a lot about this because it's really, I know that it's gotten goofy. I know that there are people out there saying, well, because of that, everyone should be rich. Of course, everyone shouldn't be rich. The widow wasn't rich. She was generous. Or that everybody should be poor. Of course, everybody shouldn't be poor. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't condemn the other people who are giving out of their abundance. He's just making an observation. He recognizes that people are giving out of their abundance. That's not a problem either. I know it gets goofy, so we don't like to talk about it. But God notices generosity. It's the only spiritual discipline. He says, test me. If you don't believe me, test me. Be faithful. You'll be okay. 
In fact, I'll give you more to be faithful with. You'll know that you need less. Your life will even out. You'll have margin. It's a gift to us to be generous. So, here's the challenge today. What do we do next? Well, I just cut and paste this part from my other three sermons. Here we go. Here we go. I'm hesitant to use the term tithe because I think it brings up the bare minimum. However, I do believe that it is a good biblical minimum standard and a launching point for biblical generosity. I really do. I think 10% is a smart number, okay? Whatever else we think about it, the church has adopted it as as our bare minimum standard. In fact, if you've been to old school churches, they say when the collection plate comes around, now it's time for tithes and offerings, 10% plus more? What? How about half a tithe and then some offering? No. And so here's what I'm asking. If you're not quite yet to 10%, this is a really great thing to test God on this year. Just ask him what he wants you to do. Just ask him what he wants you to do. I'm not telling you what to do. Ask him. I know this. He's good. And I know that generosity changes the world. And I know that when we're generous, we find favor. And our hearts are glad. It's Thanksgiving. You want to know how to be thankful? Be generous. It'll make your heart glad. For those of us who are faithfully tithing, maybe we should consider offering. Maybe we should consider offerings. Is there a little bit more than you want me to do, God? What's sacrifice for me? Am I living in margin? Am I spending every penny? Do I need all this stuff? Ask God. Ask God. Step out in faith. Give a little bit more. And for both of these things, let me just say this. It is that time of year again where pledge cards are in your bulletin. Okay. We have plans. We'll talk a lot about them at the beginning of the year after Christmas. We are, as is typical for this time of the year, we're behind in our giving, right? It's been in your bulletin. This is common for us at this time of year. It's one of the reasons every November I get up and remind us all, right? So I'm just going to ask you to be faithful to finish the pledging that you've committed to this year. And if you are capable and able and God tells you to, to put a little bit more in. We've moved into this new building. There's new mission to be done. Let's be generous together. Now, I end every sermon this way. That, those are some really good motivators. Uh, not motivators. There's some really good things about generosity, those three things. They shouldn't be the motivator. We read the motivator today. It's in Isaiah 55. If you, if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 55. For no other reason that I don't have it written down, I've forgotten the last page of my notes, so this will go fast. But I want to read the first two verses. The motivation for sacrificial generosity is simply this. God is sacrificially generous to us. Look at these first two verses of Isaiah 55. Come everyone who thirsts. By the way, that's all of us. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. Come and he who has no money. There it is. And he who has no money. Come by wine and milk. Without money, 
and without price. Why are we generous? What else could we be as a people of a God who is so generous as to sacrifice his only son so that we can come with no money and buy living waters? That's the motivation. It's not for what we can do or what we can get, although those are good things. It's because of who God is. And so in just a moment, before the basket come out, I will just say this little phrase that I say all the time from the book of Ephesians. Now walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself as a fragrant offering, there it is, and sacrifice to God. So let's just take a minute. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and begin to ask God, what would you like me to do in generosity? How would you like me to grow? And then my encouragement to you, as I say every year, is this. Do exactly what God tells you. Give exactly what God tells you to give and not one penny more. You bow your head and close your eyes. I'll watch the time. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. (laughs) 